Brethren in Christ, Laudetu Jesus Christus in Sequila. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. I'm joined today by Father Christian Kappas. Father Kappas, it's an honor to have you on once again. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to talk about Duns Scotus. Yes, this is uh, a very important topic, and it's uh, lesser known, and there are various objections get floated around. So we're going to talk about Scotism. And uh, any objections, questions, please send them to the chat at Meaning of Catholic. Uh, Father Kappas is the academic dean of the Byzantine Catholic Seminary of St. Cyril of Methodius. He is also the professor of, what is it, systematic, professor of dogmatic theology, professor of liturgical theology, and director of intellectual formation. And would you say, Father Kappas, that you are a SCOTist? Confession um, time. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tough question. Um, okay. I would say that the principles of Scotism inform a lot of my ways of picking part questions, and um, and I would say that the philosophical tenets of Scotism are always kind of instincts for me to go to when I address either a question of modern science or philosophy or theology. And uh, if we were to compare that to the most well known school like Thomism. I would say that those principles are by far more to the fore of my mind than, let's say, a Thomistic principle when it would okay. be problem solving. Okay, great. Excellent. Well, it, before we begin, Father Kappas, if you would, please just offer up a prayer for this conversation, and then sure. we'll get started. Holy Spirit, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present, filling all things, treasury of blessings, and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, most gracious one. Amen. Excellent. Thank you, Father Kappas. So the let me first begin with uh, a basic assumption that many have, and that is that Thomism is Catholicism is Thomism. And I want to first discuss Thomism because it's the most prominent, most, uh, you know, often referred to school. Uh, so you can can you describe in what sense is Thomism sort of the dominant school or, or a defining school of Catholicism? In what sense is it Catholicism or is it not Catholicism? And then we can get into that relationship with Scotism. Yeah, isms are, are already a problem. Um, so you have Thomas Aquinas's 16th century uh, gathering of his works by the Dominicans. Now, some of those works are no longer authentic, but it, this is what the Dominicans really tried hard to get all the right stuff together in the 16th century. And if you said, I hold everything in these 20 volumes, then you would have to hold the 80 different positions that Thomas Aquinas changed his mind on. Uh, so which one are you going to hold? Is it the later position or the earlier one? There's um, a uh, very good scholar at Fordham by the name of Giorgio Pini, who shows that the Dominican order, in order to address Thomas Aquinas, who was being attacked, they wanted to defend him. So this was not the Dominican order attacking their own. But in the 1280s, they came up with a list. And I want to say there were 84 propositions or so, but it could be somewhere around 80. And in his article, <clears throat> when he deals with this, there are about 80 different positions in which Thomas Aquinas changed his uh, viewpoints during the course of his life, uh, sometimes more than once. Um, and so what is Thomism? Now, I think that if you have to ask what does Thomas believe, well, that's a little bit different than what the 24 Theses hold, because the 24 Theses, which some of us may have heard about, are a uh, early 1900s declaration by uh, Pope St. Pius X uh, who had 
experts on the resurgence of Thomas Aquinas uh, that was happening in Italy at the time write up some basic theses that seem to be Thomas's most mature positions on things, or at least the favored positions of the Dominicans of the early 1900s uh, on, on particular topics. And it was thought that these could be imposed as Thomism. And uh, because the, the objection of the Jesuits, and I know we could probably spend the rest of our time here making Jesuit jokes, but because the, uh, the objections of the Jesuits, um, basically the, the imposition of the, the 24 Thomistic Theses really came to nothing. Uh, they, they began to be looked at as safe propositions, which can be held uh, without any sort of worry about coming into conflict with Catholic magisterium. Now, you asked me uh, about uh, Thomism. So this is the problem. Uh, what is Thomism? If I don't have to hold to the 24 Theses, for example, many Jesuits consider themselves Thomists, but they uh, are more Suarezian in their, per, in their persuasion. Uh, Suarez himself is said to have only held uh, one out of the 24 Theses. The other 23 he doesn't hold, though Thomas is his great light. So is he Thomist? Most people would say no. In 1965, I believe, uh, uh, a very enthusiastic, self-described Thomist by the name of Wrench wrote a book and the book was supposed to take the first two or three generations of Thomists and show what common doctrines that they all held that made them Thomists. So the beginning of the book, which was, he had a grant offered him, uh, was very, very uh, optimistic, enthusiastic. And by the time you get at the end of the book, uh, you have some of the great lights of the Dominican order that they don't qualify as Thomists, depending on how many propositions you want. So if you say Thomism is official for the church, which one do you think that most people are referring to? Now, maybe you've heard conversations. Do you think it's the 24 Theses, Timothy? Um, I think my initial reaction would be a, a, a question of method, not a mm. question of propositions. But that's a good point. Uh, but if you try to nail down the propositions, like you're saying, it's hard to nail them down. Mm -hmm. um, what about if we think about it as a method? Well, that's a good question. So with uh, Giorgio Pini, for example, uh, listing... Um, some of these examples. And actually, uh, Richard Cross, who's a very famous um, professor of philosophy at uh, Notre Dame, has published quite a bit on Aquinas and, and uh, Duns Scotus, both comparing and contrasting them. Um, what you would find, for example, with Christology is that Thomas actually had different methods of approaching Christology as he went through his life. Sometimes he liked parts to holes Christology, and sometimes he played with the idea that maybe the humanity of Christ is more like an accident and the divinity of Christ is more like a substance uh, in our analogies. So here we have two different methodological approaches to answer a very important question within Thomas's own works. So what, what you're finding out is it, I mean, this almost sounds like I'm a politician and you're asking me, should we, should we hike taxes, right? Uh, uh, for me, Thomism would be, um, and I've described this in my own work, Thomism would be, first of all, we could consider Thomas, I can, does the author himself think that he's a Thomist? Does he consider Thomas as light? And I would say that that would be an important aspect. Uh, a, a second might be, is the, are the most basic principles of philosophy and or theology in the theologian uh, quite clearly present when he problem solves, right? And then lastly, um, I would say, uh, do we actually find uh, quotations or 
uh, a, a regurgitation, in summary, of Thomas's thought in the person's works. So if, if we use that as a criterion, then it's, it's so, I, I think it's difficult to say that that can be official Thomism because that's rather amorphous, isn't it? Um, now, if you want to know uh, where the magisterium historically has been for a little while, which was from uh, Leo the Thirteenth, which we'll talk about, I know, in a little bit, until Pius the Twelfth, uh, there was a sense in which there was a Thomist school. That school was dominated by looking at a point of reference to the twenty-four theses, and so we can talk about a neo-scholastic sort of gathering around the 24 theses for a period of about 75 years. So if that's what we mean by Thomism, there is a certain degree of officiousness in the magisterium that does recognize that, and I would say privileges that uh, above its competitors. So a very long-winded question. Okay, okay, so, so you're saying in all fairness, there is a certain amount of privilege given to St. Thomas, or at least the, the neo-Thomism, you can read the 92 Catechism. Obviously, there's tons of references to the Summa. It's it's very much highly regarded in the newest Catechism. Mm -hmm. um, so you're saying there is cert a certain privilege given to Thomas. So would you say that there's it, there is a role for Thomism as some sort of plumb line of some sort mm -hmm. uh, in Catholic theology? If so, then where do you place Scotism in that? Yeah, Scotism would not have the kind of magisterial endorsements, either the numerical amount of them or the, um, you might say, gravity of magisterial endorsements. So the, probably the gravest magisterial endorsements for a something like the 24 Thesis Thomism, which again, is not the historical Thomism of someone like Hervéus Natalis who got Thomas Aquinas canonized, uh, or Armandus of Bellavizu who wrote... Uh, the commentary, one of the great commentaries on the um, on being in essence, these individuals mixed and matched historically. So, if we were talking about the twenty-four thesis Thomism, which really only began to exist uh, after uh, Leo the Thirteenth inspired individuals to kind of go in that direction, um, we would be saying that um, this kind of Thomism was endorsed by Pope Pius the Eleventh and Harietes Saquas and some other works. He, he stops short of, he says, he says something along the lines of the church considers his teaching all, almost as if or as if its own. So it's one of those things where if you're in a telephone contract and you have that phrase, you're going to get out of having to, you know, have 12 months of the same service because it's as if. Uh, but for the average person that's reading that, it's quite clearly meant to be an endorsement, right? You feel obligated to it. And that was exactly what Pope Pius XI wanted to do. He wanted people to feel that they should privilege and almost necessitated that the average everyday Joe should accept uh, Thomism as the standard. Um, now, the um, Congregation for Education at the time uh, was pretty much on a, um, what we want to say, it, its policy was to try to get any Catholic institutions of higher learning to embrace Thomism. And, and by and large, only the Jesuits who had tons of education institutions managed to resist that. And of course, the Franciscans who had their own colleges and universities and these sorts of things. And they were also endorsed by the Holy See for having their own approach to scholasticism. Okay, well, that, that provides a great context for everything that happens with Vatican II because there's a lot of Jesuits involved in that. 
um, reacting against the neotomism, of course. So where is Scotism both historically and into this period of the neo in terms of its its uh, weight and gravitas sort of in the Catholic tradition? Yeah, the uh, Scotism more or less was um, a, a loose school. So when you think of the 24 Thesis Thomism, you can go to a document, you can look at those 24 Theses, they're in Latin in the Apa, Acta Apostolici Sedis, uh, Apostolici Sedis, right? So um, we can, I can pull up that document and you could probably post it. When you look at what are the fundamental um, beliefs of SCOTUS, you have to dig those out of commentaries on the most famous textbook of the Middle Ages, which is Peter Lombard's Sentences. Everyone to get their doctorate had to write a commentary on Peter Lombard's Sentences. I'm just going to say for the sake of ease, since we have listeners that just want to know the basics, let's say we have more or less four partial or full commentaries of Duns Scotus on the sentences, four different commentaries, which means there are different stages of his life. Um, that means we have to compile all that and make sure he didn't change any of his positions. Um, one of the advantages that um, medieval, I should say late medieval, uh, maybe more Renaissance Thomism had was in the 1500s when they compiled the official list of St. Thomas Aquinas's works at the behest, I think, of Pope Pius V. You had a kind of a body of, of works to work with, but the problem with Scotism that it was plagued with for many centuries was there were, there were works that were attributed to Scotus that were not really his. And so a lot of the reaction, for, for example, Heidegger for his doctoral dissertation, uh, who was a famous philosopher um, for those listeners of the uh, early 20th century, into the World War II period, especially famous for uh, being, among other things, a Nazi. Um, but uh, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on a pseudo work of Scotus. And it was only in the 1950s that they began to sort the wheat from the chaff and to actually identify the real works of Scotus versus the false ones. So really we're, we're dealing with uh, Scotism. If that means what Scotus wrote and what the positions that Scotus held are, we can only really start using authors who blame him or praise him from the 1950s and beyond. Because before that, what you have to rely on is what is being taught in the Franciscan mini colleges or what they call the studia. And these Franciscan mini colleges, um, just like the Dominican mini colleges or studia, um, the tradition of what of Franciscans, how they read the attributed works of SCOTUS and what they made of the whole was handed on. So it's really in the, uh, to the, in the Dominican order, as well as the Franciscan order, it's really inside the walls of the many colleges, let's call them private colleges, of the Franciscans, where the tradition of what Scotus believed was held. And by and large, what you find is in the early 1900s, people that were famous, uh, one would be Parthenius Minguez, whose articles can be found in the Catholic Encyclopedia from 1917. Uh, these individuals were trained within that verbal oral tradition that sorted through the wheat and the chaff until we could come up with a critical edition. So we only know what Scotus's own thought actually was by uh, gradually sifting through this and coming to a conclusion after the 1950s. Well, that's that's very important to know, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. It's And it's surprising, I think, to some to re realize that. Uh, and even St. Thomas Aquinas himself in uh, the Contra Errores Graecorum 
uses a lot of spurious text back, back yeah. to the fathers. And then we've got spurious texts in the scholastics and everything. So there's a lot of work to be done, of course. Um, so can you give us an introduction briefly to the man, uh, mm -hmm. Dun Scotus, now beatified, and introduce us to some of the notable things about what is Scotism? Great. Um, let's start. Um, this, there's a small controversy that still exists, but by and large, everyone has agreed that he was a Scotsman, so all the Scotch out there have someone to be proud of. Um, he uh, was from this area of Scotland, which is, of course, Duns, but that's more of a, uh, it relates to an area where there's a family name as the Dunses. Of course, he starts sounding like the Dunces, right? So this is actually uh, historically what happens is people uh, start making fun of the Franciscan school and calling them Dunces, uh, referring to Dun Scotus. Uh, you have basically a very young man, like uh, most men who were in religious orders at the time, who entered into his Franciscan trading probably uh, before his teenage years, learning uh, what we would consider now pretty abstract stuff, porphyry, uh, introduction to um, Arist Aristotelian stuff, these sorts of things. And uh, he studied in his local Franciscan um, studium or mini college, his private college, if you will, maybe his junior college, we'll call it, uh, until he was ready to go to uh, Oxford in uh, 1297, 1298, uh, and prepare a, as a bachelor student, prepare a commentary on the sentences. This would later be used for his doctoral dissertation, uh, was the idea is that by studying the, the standard textbook at the time, which had been written around 1145 AD, the, this, I think the second edition of Lombard sentences as, as is thought, um, that uh, this would be what would get you your doctorate. And uh, Scotus very quickly, I think, ascended beyond his brethren for his intellect. And he was, by the minister general, selected to go to Paris, which was the intellectual center of Western Christendom at the time. And uh, it was there that he um, began his bachelor's uh, without finishing his his master's or doctorate in um, Oxford, uh, he began his bachelor's toward his doctorate in Paris, but that got broken apart uh, or broken up because Philip the Fair, who was in a uh, fit with the famous Bonus VIII, uh, demanded um, that the religious at the university take an oath preferring Philip the Fair, in so many words, over Pope Boniface VIII. And Scotus was among those who was into defending the jurisdiction and uh, various other things with regard to the Pope. Uh, and so he refused to swear loyalty to uh, Philip the Fair over um, the uh, pontiff. And therefore, he was a, basically, he was um, not really exiled, um, the word escapes me now, when you are expelled. He was expelled from France. And because he was kind of a bright intellectual light, then he was sent to Cambridge. So we've got somebody that went from Oxford to Paris to Cambridge. So he's, he's at all the intellectual centers at the time, Paris being the, the central one. And it's there that he, he's a bachelor's again. And he's writing more commentaries. And eventually what happens is, is uh, the Philip the Fair situation basically is resolved by Boniface VIII dying. And uh, 
the situation is such that um, Scotus is allowed to come back to Paris, and he does become a uh, teaching master, which is our equivalent of a doctorate. He publishes some of his most important work, uh, and then he's moved to Cologne, and he shortly after dies in 1308. So pretty much all of Duns's life as a Franciscan was spent in study in preparation for being able to interpret Holy Scripture. One of the things that many of us who read something like Thomas Aquinas uh, might get the false impression is that the Summa Theologiae is sort of the central text. The Summa Theologiae has become, because of its convenience, a great handbook. But really, that is a 15th, maybe six, actually 16th century phenomenon to begin to prefer the Summa Theologiae as a text. Uh, before that, everyone in the Dominican order's principal text to refer to would have been St. Thomas's Sentences Commentary, because that's what you're doing. You're, you're in your mini college or your junior college, which is run by Dominicans, and you're reading two things, the Bible and the standard textbook, which is Lombard Sentences. And so how are you going to learn to understand Lombard Sentences? We're well, going to read what Thomas Aquinas and uh, pretty much everybody is reading Bonaventure as well. And what Bonaventure are saying on the sentences, and uh, that means that the Summa Theologiae really isn't a central text. So what we tend to think of now as being kind of the standard, it was actually um, only something after really the um, the Reformation that becomes the standard text in the Dominican order. And just for viewers, the Lombard sentences, as I understand, is just a, a collection of patristic citations. Am I right? Yeah, probably... It wouldn't surprise me if 85% of what's in there are patristic biblical citations, and about 15%, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that it's Lombard making his own opinions. Uh, some of those opinions were still controversial at the time of Thomas Aquinas writing his doctoral dissertation, and even then Scotus. And so there was a lot of argument either for or against Lombard's very few positions that he takes within that four, let's call it that four book um textbook four four volume textbook okay so scotus as they all did at that time writes a commentary on the textbook of the time lombard sentences which is just the fathers and so and he was already uh, he was a franciscan so bonaventure was already sort of the the biggest name of the franciscans in terms of intellectual life mm -hmm. so can you tell us about uh bonaventure and scotism does scotism sort of synthesize Bonaventure into a system? Is that how that kind of becomes about? Tell us about um, that sure. process. Uh, the first thing is, is uh, Dr. Timothy Noon at Catholic University of America has done a lot of work on Bonaventure's commentary on the sentences. Again, Peter Lombard's textbook. And basically Bonaventure was the standard to be read by everyone. Thomas Aquinas used Bonaventure. So this idea that Franciscans are in opposition to Dominicans is a really a uh, post, probably um, late 12, uh, 12, post 1277 phenomenon, where there was um, some propositions that seemed to have been poked at by a couple bishops uh, in two different dioceses that were basically, seemed to be implicating Thomas Aquinas with heresy, and some Franciscans in obedience to the bishops in whose diocese they found themselves. Um, started to endorse a corrected version of Thomas's works. And this led to what was called on one side, the correctorium, meaning uh, for our, our listeners, the corrected version of Thomas's works that, you know, don't make bishops mad. 
And then the, uh, and then the Dominicans uh, began to refer to as the Corruptorium, which was the corrupted version of Thomas's works, which nobody should read. So th this was, and, and, and to the extent that the Franciscans were sensitive to these two bishops' condemnations, um, this probably had some role in feeling, starting to really feel an opposition between the two orders, which of course uh, flourished and flowered. But so basically then Bonaventure's sentences were read by everybody. Thomas Aquinas read these sentences and used them. They were considered the, um, the best commentary in the Middle Ages for style of Latinity, for beauty, for insight. Um, and um, Bonaventure is oftentimes misread from the 19th century on, and this is the, really the work of Dr. Jared Goff, uh, who you may have run across, who also teaches at our seminary, who publishes quite a bit on Bonaventure. Um, in many ways, uh, Scotus is just a continuation and a perfecter of Bonaventure, which I, I believe was even mentioned um, perhaps in um, Benedict the Sixteenth's uh, letter to the Scotus Commission. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Um, but uh, he was considered traditionally in the order just the perfecter of Bonaventure. And uh, basically then some of the proto ideas or seminal ideas in Bonaventure would be something like the univocity of the concept of being, uh, which we might get into a little bit uh, just to help our hearers understand what that might be. Uh, other things uh, were the centrality of the incarnation uh, over uh, the incarnation being sort of God's reaction to Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, so the, the incarnation was always pre-planned by God. Uh, there's a certain Marian focus in the Franciscan order, which is not typical of Dominican spirituality. Uh, now the Dominicans, of course, are, are very out towards the Immaculate Conception, but that was after centuries of uh, even doing things like having vigils that, that would not be defined. So, I mean, I, it's great that you know, the Dominicans are on board after the dogma is proclaimed, but I mean, this was rather nasty fighting for a number of centuries. Not that the Franciscans sadly couldn't be nasty back uh, as individuals, right, uh, on any number of topics. But uh, these are these would be some central themes of Bonaventure. Also, um, Bonaventure uh, liked to divide being into what are called the transcendental disjuncts, that being is either infinite or finite, being is either eternal or temporal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These, these are all a lot of the setups uh, that SCOTUS will kind of take that baton and run with them, which will give Franciscan theology a rather distinct flavor, which are not the starting points for Dominican theology insofar as Thomas Aquinas becomes kind of the standard reference point for theology by the uh, probably the 1300s, the early 1300s, the Dominican order. Okay. Well, let me start by two basic points that are often said about Scotism, and maybe we can get into the, more of the difficult abstract concepts that you made mention of. Mm -hmm. The first one is, it's often said that Thomas was Aristotelian mm -hmm. in method, and uh, the Bonaventure school and the Scotus school is sort of more Augustinian and therefore Platonist in, in sort of method. And just for viewers, um, and you can just like add to this, please. Mm -hmm. uh, as I understand it, the Aristotelian method, sort of breaking it down, is essentially we're going to start with an objective reality that we know that's outside. We're going to look at a rock and we're going to say that's a rock. 
what is its color? What is its shape? We're going to observe it. It's sort of an imperial, it's very scientific, if you will. Whereas the Platonic method is sort of like, I'm going to think about the concept of a rock. And I'm going to sort of start subjectively in the sense that I'm just sort of thinking a priori about the concept of rockness and just think about it in, in myself and, and all the different aspects of that. Sort of you're going to these platonic forms. So it's sort of an objective starting point in the one hand and more of a subjective starting point on the other in terms of Plato. So I'm not sure if you would agree or disagree with that sort of vulgar summation. And there's so many mm -hmm. other aspects, of course, because we can't really get into all the aspects and um, complexities. But if that would be accepted as sort of a vulgar oversimplification at the risk of oversimplification, would you say that there is a general tendency uh, it's sort of in terms of Thomas as an Aristotelian and Scotus as a Platonist? Is that too over too oversimplified, or is there a truth to that at all? Why don't I give you a simple yes uh, that Thomas is against Neoplatonism as a simple yes, and now I'm going to qualify it. Uh, the best book still happens to be out there by an individual by the name of Henley, H-E-N-L-E, -E, uh, that was published in the Netherlands in the 1950s, which takes extracts of every single passage in all of Thomas Aquinas's works that mention Plato and Platonism and analyzes them for what Aquinas thinks of Plato and Platonism. So it's an it's a entirely valuable book for your question. And you do see that overall, uh, Thomas is much more willing to call Plato and Platonists bad names or uh, reject some of their underlying theories, even if he finds uh, some good things in Pla Plato and Platonism. And he's less likely, it's very difficult. Now, I have asked um, people that spend their life in Aquinas if they've actually ever found passages where Aquinas will openly say, Aristotle, you're not right. And there are some passages. I myself have not run across these. So, but it would be rarer to find Thomas openly and admittedly disagreeing with Aristotle instead of kind of massaging Aristotle and, and kind of saying, well, what he meant to say was, I think there's some historical reasons why he does this because he has always got in the back of his mind the secularists in the arts faculty in Paris who are trying to say uh, philosophy is better, in, in our language, not in their language, um, philosophy is better than theology because this Aristotelian stuff means that we can have a real science and you guys are just kind of all thumbs, kind of digging into fathers and scripture and you're dealing with a bunch of little uh, details here and there and you don't see the big picture. And science is, is about the permanent eternal big picture and we know the big picture. So I think that in many ways, Aquinas is happy to massage Aristotle into being right by taking him in this or that sense if he can't get the sense that he needs from him because he wants the arts faculty uh, who is reading his materials since he's against them, uh, writing against them effectively in, in many of his early writings. Um, he wants them to take notice of the fact that you can be an Aristotelian and be a Christian. Uh, I would say this though, is that if we tried to call Thomas an Aristotelian, we would have a lot more problems, I think, than we would have solutions. Uh, for example, what do you do with the idea of participation? Thomas Aquinas is very big on participation, that we somehow can participate 
and anything from the Holy Spirit to grace, um, that in some sense, the exemplars, and now he's not going to use exemplary causality in the sense that the Franciscan tradition does, but he is going to admit that virtually in God are all the forms that, for example, we might see doggy soul and doggy bodies. We think we have some, let's say, sense that doggy souls are not exactly human souls. We get some sense of what they might be by their operations. Um, the doggy soul is going to exist in a, in a perf as a perfect intellectually understood item uh, within the divine essence before it's ever out here. That's, mm, that is some form of Platonism. Uh, it may be attenuated uh, to not have what Franciscans have, which is God doesn't actually contemplate for, for Thomists dogginess or hoarseness. Uh, you may say, well, what in the world is hoarseness? Well, Avicenna, famous, you're, you're an Arabic scholar. Uh, as Avicenna said, hoarseness is just hoarseness. Uh, it is uh, the abstraction of a horse, right? Now, what's interesting is, is in Thomas's early commentaries on the sentences, he endorses Neoplatonism. If you actually look in his early sentences commentary when he talks about divine ideas, he will say that God has the idea of humanity and the idea of hoarseness in his mind. He's, that's Avicenna right there, right? Uh, the, the discussion of hoarseness in the divine mind. By the time we get to the Summa Contra Gentiles, he's, he's, he's entirely uh, cleaned that up and, and gotten rid of all that. That's just leftover Augustinianism, uh, which he addresses in, I think, um, book one of the Summa Contra Gentiles, somewhere around question 54, where he admits that Augustine holds this idea that God knows all numbers actually uh, just like he would know hoarseness and humanity, and this is what the Franciscan position is. And Thomas believes that there's too many risks in going down this path of Neoplatonism, and that he would rather, to this extent, be more Aristotelian, which is the divine being is more like just a mind-thinking thought. That's it. Nothing. Uh, the thought is uh, one great whole that virtually contains everything that's outside of it by act of divine fiat. So um, does the Franciscan tradition hold for Neoplatonism? Uh, certainly it's very, you can smell it, taste it, and touch it much more clearly in Bonaventure. In Scotus, it's always lurking behind the scenes, um, but it's oftentimes much more attenuated to Aristotelian concerns. Uh, so probably Thomas Aquinas and uh, Duns actually share more uh, than they disagree on because they're fundamentally Aristotelian in outlook on things like psychology, uh, on things like uh, talking about definitions of things and even their approach to talking about being. Um, the, of course, the, some of these things are argued. So they probably have more in common than they have differences. Okay, great. Well, I want to get to some of the objections to Scotism, okay. but before we do that, you, what was the, I, I don't believe you mentioned the magisterial endorsements of Scotus. What, mm -hmm. what are, what, if any, are there any magisterial endorsements of Scotus and his thought? The most recent is the address of Benedict the 16th to the Scotistic commission. Uh, there's also a homily of John Paul the second, of course, um, not everyone, for some reason, uh, wants to hear about post-Vatican uh, II uh, magisterial endorsements. We all want to hear about early ones. So there is a great book that I have um, with me, which is um, 
kind of a lexicon on how to read everything SCOTUS ever wrote, or at least as they thought he wrote it in 1910. So this is written during Pius X's, um, let's see if I can get it here, Pius X's uh, reign. It's called a lexicon scholasticum. I, it should be available on Google Books, but somehow they haven't uploaded it like they do everything else. It's not like this thing uh, sells like hotcakes, so I don't know what the deal is. Uh, why, how somebody bought rice to this. But it's written by Garcia, and at the very beginning are all the magisterial endorsements of Scotism. And you're going to find that they're going to be minor and less impressive than you can do for Thomism in the 19th century, and even in the 14th century. There's some really great magisterial in, endorsements of Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century as well. Um, so, for example, most of these come from things like, um, there's a brief in 1568 by Pius V, so a papal letter, uh, in, in which um, Scotus is, by a Dominican pope, uh, endorsed as one of the speculative um, uh, reading sources that French Franciscans should be using uh, in, in the conventional order. So uh, the brief, for those who want to know, is called Ila Nos Cura by Pope St. Pius V. Ila Nos Cura, I-L-L-A-N-O-S-C-U-R-A. -L -L -A um, it's certainly not something um, that would be considered universal. It's more for the Franciscans, defending the Franciscans' rights to um, hold up SCOTUS as, a, a, as orthodox. We, uh, another significant one, I'm just skipping over uh, some of the lesser ones here. Um, another, some other endorsements are by uh, Pope Urban VIII. There's about three or four by him in 1634, 1628, etc. Uh, mainly these are for use at Catholic universities and Franciscan universities. Uh, we also have Benedict XIV, uh, who is another important legislating pope. Uh, for example, ad pastori, I'm sorry, ad pastoralis dignitatis, and another one. I mean, he's got several mentions. Um, once again, they're almost always specific to the Franciscan order. Uh, you do see some endorsement of him as the Marian doctor, as the Immaculate Conception gets closer, and therefore there's much more interest in him being a gift to the entire church. But uh, all of these, including St. Pius X, defended the right of the Franciscans to teach the orthodoxy of Scotus. So we do have statements, for example, that are provided by Garcia from St. Pius X in um, apostolic letters, which basically do exactly what we said. So if you ask yourself, um, is, does this endorse SCOTUS for the universal church uh, in the terms of Thomas Aquinas? Clearly it does not. Does it uh, suppose, uh, based off of papal legislation and even magisterial statements, uh, that SCOTUS is orthodox and uh, has inherent value? Yes, of course it does. Um, and I, as I would argue that there can be sort of no canonization of Thomas's thought, unless you're going to canonize 80 different change positions, uh, and then say both of them have to be true at the same time, which is exactly one of the problems that you had in the late 1200s that Thomas was dealing with the double truth theory, uh, that something can be true philosophically and not true uh, theologically, uh, that really you can't, you can say that Thomas has a greater degree of dignity 
in uh, the Catholic Magisterium than SCOTUS does. But as far as orthodoxy goes, you're not going to find the Magisterium impugning the orthodoxy of either Bonaventure or SCOTUS or Thomas. Okay, excellent. Well, that's a perfect way to introduce the objections to SCOTUS because, as you just demonstrated, there's clearly a magisterial endorsement of the orthodoxy of SCOTUS. No one can really object fundamentally. We can debate about, you know, minor propositions perhaps, but, um, and that is the figure, of course, of uh, Occam. And Occam, of course, comes in and leads straight to the Protestant revolt. Uh, Luther himself said that Occam is my master. And I just want to read the quote from the Regensburg address with Benedict XVI. He's, he's making this great con- He's speaking about faith and reason. It's a great address. Go look it up. Regensburg address. And he discusses in contrast, as you just pointed out, the, uh, the Muslim mindset, which comes out of Averroes and Avicenna, which leads to this double truth theory, which is, um, to try to boil it down, the Islamic concept, which is very similar to a Luther or Calvinist view, is essentially that God's will is supreme. His will is can impose. Uh, the idea is that God's uh, God, the Ten Commandments could have been otherwise. God could have imposed different Ten Commandments. He could have imposed that uh, murder is okay or various things like that. His will is supreme. And Benedict XVI contrasts this um, because it's ultimately not rational. It's a denial of reason. Um, It's a denial of faith and reason together integrated uh, because God, uh, the the refutation that I read um, from uh, E. Michael Jones pointed it out in his book, Logos Rising, the refutation of voluntarism by St. Thomas is that uh, the idea that God can will something other than wisdom is blasphemy, he said. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Benedict XVI says this. He says, he's contrasting these two views, and he says this, quote, in contrast to the so-called intellectualism of Augustine and Thomas, there arose with Dunscotism, with, with Dunscotus a voluntarism, which in its later developments led to the claim that we can only know God's voluntas ordinata, his ordained will, um, which eventually leads to Occam and, as we said, Protestant revolt. Um, so can you contrast for us, if we, if we can hold to SCOTUS as orthodox, as you just said, is there a, any comparable Occam endorsement? I actually read in the New Catholic Encyclopedia under Occam, it says that Occam has never been condemned. Um, and I found that curious. Uh, so can we contrast then the endorsement of SCOTUS to Occam, in what sense is, do you think that Benedict here is being accurate with a voluntarism arising from SCOTUS? Can you address this main objection, I think, that the voluntarism? Well, do you notice that um, basically what he does is he removes the accusation one step from SCOTUS and its later developments. Right. So he's already hedging his bets and not blaming SCOTUS. Um, if we read his address to the SCOTUS Commission, which is posterior to this, we find that he has nothing but, but praise for SCOTUS. Um, this comment was looked about um, rather strangely, uh, as, as seen as very, very strange by uh, medievalists, uh, because you're 
what you're doing is you're kind of doing what is oftentimes an overused word in intellectual circles. You're doing something anachronistically. You're saying, because post hoc ergo hoc kind of reasoning, which is because Occam historically is closer to, let's say, SCOTUS or is reacting to SCOTUS, um, therefore Occam is the logical, uh, sort of in a Hegelian sense, the logical synthesis of SCOTUS and and some sort of anti-SCOTUS proposition. Uh, the problem that we have here is uh, Timothy Noon, who has a YouTube video on this, he's at the Catholic University of America, has pinpointed historically the exact moment when, when SCOTUS was first accused of Occamism. And this is centuries after his death. Centuries. So no one at Occam's time, thought Scotus and Occam had anything really to do with one another. Occam was a great enemy of Scotus. He disagreed with Scotus. Um, he took positions that were meant to distinguish himself from Scotus. Um, what we find is that rather poor philosophical literature from the 16th century, which is basically polemical Franciscan Dominican literature, I hate you, you hate me, whose team's better, you know. Uh, it's like sitting at a stadium and and uh, ailing insults at one another. That's the kind of intellectual stuff we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, basically, this gets taken up by a couple of historians of philosophy in the 19th century, and they run with it. And Gilson at least did a little bit to try to put Catholics on the right track with, with SCOTUS. But all this stuff is basically mythology. And I think Timothy Noon is probably, uh, if not the greatest expert on the actual uh, manuscript traditions uh, and, and the contents of these various authors, uh, Scotus Bonaventure and um, another fellow that I won't mention uh, too much about, his name is Rufus, uh, but he, he understands very, very well where these, uh, where these so-called divisions come from. Um, the idea is, is that because there's something that's called uh, an God's, let's say, ordained will. That just means what we can um, discern by decree. So we know that God has decrees because there's scripture. In, in scripture, there are these decrees, let's say. Or let's say that we admit that philo philosophically we can know some necessary things that God must will. Um, but this is exactly where Occam is, is not agreeing with Scotus and Aquinas. He's saying that we can't really know what God must will metaphysically. If he's only admitting that we can know God's ordained will, and we can't know God's will in itself, he's saying that we can't know how God's mind works because God isn't, as you said, rational. Well, this is, I mean, this is where Aquinas and Scotus are in perfect agreement that the intellect, by knowing ice cream, I can choose ice cream. I can't choose ice cream without knowing ice cream as a rational being. So both Aquinas and Scotus are admitting that ice cream first must be known before it is chosen. Um, and this idea that there's a voluntarism in Scotus where the will chooses without having anything specified first by the intellect is really asinine. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's people that really don't understand medieval studies or medieval theology or medieval philosophy that will make these kinds of statements. Um, and in fact, uh, a friend of mine, uh, maybe he doesn't want me to call him his friend. Hmm. A, a respected scholar, uh, Garrett Smith, who has put out a article recently on um, early Scotism showing how 
it held for the analogy of being in so many words, which is oftentimes said, oh, Scotism, no analogy of being whatsoever. Uh, Thomism, there is analogy of being, shows that this is also asinine. And uh, it really goes after, I think, popular promoters of this kind of garbage, like uh, Bishop Barron, who um, I don't know what his medieval studies are, but this is just, it doesn't exist historically. You're just pushing these narratives. So at a time the church is sort of all falling apart, everything's like coming apart at the seams. Nobody really cares that much about theology anymore. The solution to everything is to pick on SCOTUS. And it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me, particularly when it's, it's using myths, total myths. So basically, both the Franciscan tradition and the uh, Thomist position require specification by the intellect before one can make choices. And this is, in so many ways, even more stringently for SCOTUS, a way to understand divine psychology. If divine psychology is more understood metaphorically by the Dominicans, which I think they have been accused of in modern uh, works, and um, I think that they would want to, they would want to respond that it's analogically understood. So, as I have a mind, God has a mind. As I choose, God chooses. There's a certain analogy there. They want to want to say. And in intellectual circles in medieval studies, they're being accused of really just saying that the, these are two, this is a metaphor, but God really didn't act like that. Whereas Franciscans actually believe that there's a much stricter tit for tat there. God really does have mind. He really does choose. The Augustinian model is very strictly able to reflect how God works. Whereas the uh, Dominicans are accused in modern scholarship of really reducing this to metaphor that really God is a mystery and we don't know much about how his mind works. If that's true, where medieval studies is right now, then that means actually that the Franciscans have a more strict sense that you can know God's internal reasonings, why he chooses the necessary things that he must choose. Uh, I should say, why he in his perfection inevitably chooses freely the things that he chooses. Um, because we can know the divine psychology. So uh, in reality, it's, it's, it's actually the opposite uh, of what is claimed. Franciscans believe you can know infallibly and strictly the divine psychology, which means that the choice of God is always structurally dependent on God's knowledge, whereas the Dominicans are oftentimes interpreted by the best scholars nowadays of only holding this as a metaphor and really um, that its only value is, is that it gives us a certain approaching how God must think. Okay, excellent. Uh, so w in what way can we say truthfully that SCOTUS has a, a, a certain form of an emphasis on the will? Is there, uh, would you say it is true to say he's closer in some sense, in some sense to Occam, or would you say he's, uh, there is no further emphasis on the will than in Thomas. Because natural law, like Thomism, is ultimately a reflection of God's internal structure. Uh, the word structure would mean, um, okay, I'm an electrician. I build outlets. They have a certain structure. They're meant to take plugs. If you take a fork and throw it in there, bad things are going to happen. So the only thing that's going to work for this kind of structure, this outlet, is a plug. Well, God's like that too, is that he has an internal structure, which is he's a thought producing, we'll call it machine, an infinite thought producing machine. 
and that the will chooses only that stuff that he's producing and all that stuff that he's producing is argued by the Franciscans to be truly good, uh, eternally good or whatever. So God doesn't choose evil. Um, this, the classic position that's fought against with Occam is that God can choose what we discern as objectively evil. So for example, God can tell a human being to hate him. God can say, hating me is now a virtue. And that person can be rewarded with heaven, injustice, and without God violating any internal uh, life such that he has a contradiction in himself by ordering me to hate him. This is impossible for Scotism, just as it would be for Thomism. Because God reflects in the created order his own internal organization, which is that the good must be chosen, and the final good is God. Therefore, God would be less than perfect if he could order his creatures to choose something other than himself as the last end. Um, so God cannot force um, ethically, or uh, God cannot, uh, as a perfect being, order individuals to hate him as virtue. It's, it simply cannot exist in Scotism. And it's these kinds of silly arguments which still persist, mainly because um, old histories of philosophy are still read instead of someone who's at least, I think, much more reasonable, like Copleston. Uh, Jilson probably does a little bit better. I mean, Jilson regretted uh, verbally to people I know, uh, who are now unfortunately deceased, his own writing of Scotus. He wished he had rewritten his own treatment of Scotus. But uh, there's been so many great works that have been written on the reality of Scotism now, uh, is that many uh, of the issues around voluntarism have to do with emphasis. So if the Dominican tradition is Aristotelian to the extent that it emphasizes contemplation as kind of the highest activity of a mind, uh, Franciscanism is just saying that because the will has the ability to say yes and no to something, A or not A, uh, eat this cake or not eat this cake, and the intellect is the kind of thing that if you throw a cake at your intellect, it has to process that there's a cake there. It doesn't get a choice to say, I don't want to see cake. Uh, your intellect naturally understands cake when it goes through the, when it is presented with cake. So the difference between intellect and will is, is that the intellect is like a machine. It's just a thought producing machine. Whereas the will has the ability to say yes or no to the cake. And the reason why for the Franciscans that there's a priority of the will is simply because the will commands, whereas the intellect, in a certain sense, obeys. Uh, it is passive to being, whereas the will has the ability to say yes or no to beings. And this is, this is seen as a superior faculty in and of itself. This is basically the, the root of the entire argument. If you disagree with that, what are you disagreeing with? You're just saying, well, no, I still want to prioritize the intellect. So voluntarism for, for the for Scotists has nothing to do with a lack of specificity of objects to the intellect. I mean, it's, it's absolute insanity uh, to suggest otherwise. Even in the Franciscan school before the, um, before the critical edition of Scotus's works were available from 1950 on, the entire uh, Franciscan school, all the volumes that can be found on the internet published by Parthenius Minges, which are considered the best uh, boiled down version of Scotism in a very simple Latin, uh, which you can read till the cows come home. You're never going to find any of these silly dichotomies between Thomism and Scotism. They simply do not exist. Interesting. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Father Kappas. Any 
if any viewers would like to answer, ask any questions or objections, please send those my way now. Um, how about, uh, let's see, there's Suarism, but I also want to ask you about the Greek fathers. Mm -hmm. um, St. Thomas Aquinas famously dies on his way to the Council of Lyon. Bonaventure is there. And it is said, I'm not sure if there's even documentation of this or not, but it is said that Bonaventure was the one who really won over the Greeks at that time, even though that council was short-lived in terms of any reunion efforts. Um, so let me ask you about Scotism or Bonaventurism uh, in relation to the Greek school. Is there a lot more affinity with the, the Greek fathers and the Greek thought with Scotism as opposed to St. Thomas? Um the answer is yes, uh, and in fact, I sent you a link, if you would be kind enough to maybe attach it to our program, of a symposium we're doing at the seminary in which Dr. Jerry Goff will be presenting on this exact topic, which is the Franciscan influence on the Council of, bon uh, the Council of Lyon, as well as the affinities between Bonaventure, the doctor of the church, saint, his approaches to the filioque question, and the classical uh, medieval Greek uh, way of dealing with the filioque question. And what you'll see is that there are a lot of parallels. And the reason why, as you would guess, would be the patristic tradition is by and large neoplatonic, meaning there's not, an ex there's not a major use of Aristotle exclusive of platonic commentators on Aristotle, uh, platonizing commentators on Aristotle. And so there's oftentimes a picking and choosing of how to bring Aristotle and Plato together with an idea that there can be a certain harmony uh, woven between the two. To whatever extent that we choose to believe that, I doesn't, I'm indifferent to because I, I don't hold either to be uh, particularly um, sacred cows. I'm, uh, Scotus loved to beat up on uh, Aristotle when he was wrong. Uh, I'm trying to remember if, if he beats up on Plato with equal force. He, he didn't have a sense that these individuals were somehow sacred cows, um, to my knowledge. Uh, but what we, uh, what we find is that the patristic tradition uh, really has very few individuals who could be called majorly Aristotelian. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to think of one now who I would say that his sources exclude uh, what would be called Neoplatonic sources, and I, I know of none right now. There, there might be one, uh, but I don't know who it would be. Uh, so the reason why the approach to the filioque question is going to be very similar in Bonaventure to someone like Gregory Palamas, uh, Mark of Ephesus, uh, Genadius Scolarius, is because both of them are coming out of this tradition. Uh, the reason why Thomas's approach to the filioque is going to look very different I think an underrated authority for Thomas is uh, St. Anselm, who's uh, dealing a lot, a lot more with logic um, than he is with metaphysics. And um, it is true that Aquinas does take certain aspects of Augustine, which we'll be presenting at the conference, actually. Uh, and uh, he does use those. Uh, but uh, Thomas is not interested in Neoplatonic theories of production. He's interested in making sure that God is uh, preserved, conserved in his transcendence, 
and that the way that God's activities are, are such that we can't place them in Aristotle's 10 categories of being, and therefore God is not in some sense made into a material or even an angelic kind of being, uh, but, but God remains always otherworldly. So the Franciscans are much more comfortable, as are the Greeks, with speaking in what is oftentimes referred to as more anthropomorphic uh, terms. But I would say in anthropomorphic analogies, which have real purchase on what's happening inside of the divine being. So uh, Leon, as we will find out from Dr. Jared Goff, uh, looks like it was very much under the influence of Franciscans. And Dr. Jared Goff, contrary to my own opinions uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we'll be arguing that the circumstances, the sources that are known, and comparison of texts actually show that Leon is probably a reflection of the Franciscan influence on the Filioque question. Well, that, that's that's fascinating. I, I read your uh, defense of Mark of Ephesus years ago, and uh, that'll be very interesting on that particular question. So, yeah, uh, yeah the link is below for viewers uh, to or listeners to take a look at the, the conference. Um, and so here's here's one of the best basic questions. And what is the best introductory book on SCOTUS? Uh, a lot of people won't like me suggesting this one, I think. Um, I shouldn't say a lot of people. There's not that many SCOTUSs. Um, but Richard Cross has a nice little book that's just called Dun SCOTUS. It was put out in 1999. And it just kind of compares in a gentle way the Thomistic positions and the Scotistic positions on anything from sacramental theology all the way to approaches to God and proofs for the existence of God. It's a handy, handy little volume. It doesn't overwhelm you, and it doesn't get you lost in all kinds of fancy scholastic language because both schools speak with the same terms, which oftentimes have different nuances to them. So 1999, Richard Cross, Oxford University Press. It's just called Dunscotus. Excellent. Um, th there are other introductions, but I, I, I would highly recommend that one. Okay. Thank you. That's great. Um, Starlight at Dusk asks, are there any prominent saints, blesseds, and theologians that are Scotus or lean more in his direction than Aquinas? Uh, you mentioned the magisterial approbations. Uh, what about saints and blesseds? The most famous, of course, is St. Maximilian Kolbe. Um, there are some other saints and blesseds that predate that. Um, I'd have to actually pull out a list, but Kolbe is the, the most famous, the martyr of charity of Auschwitz, whose entire theology is just Scotism. Excellent. And what about another question from Starlight? What about non-Franciscan uh, orders? Uh, is Was Scotism ever taught or promoted by non-Franciscans? It was. In fact, um, this, this doesn't mean the quantitative argument that I'm about ready to, pro I shouldn't say argument, the quantitative analysis that I'm about ready to provide doesn't mean that something is better because there are more of them. Um, but Franciscans were always the larger school of theology. And you may say, well, why would they be larger than the Thomist? I thought that the Thomists had all this papal approbation in the 14th century. They did. Uh, why would they be the larger of the two schools in the Middle Ages up until the French Revolution? because there were tons of Franciscans and there were not tons of Dominicans. The Franciscans had tens of thousands of friars, whereas the Dominicans probably were only a certain percentage 
10, 15, 20, 30% maximum of what the Franciscans were. And so the Franciscans had a greater outreach. Um, now, you could argue that Scotism became more popular because either by perception or by conviction, many um, scholastics were convinced that it was the better of the two methods. Um, I would certainly uh, sympathize with that opinion, but you know that's, that's one of those arguments that you really would have to study every single individual who had chosen between the two schools historically, tally them up uh, if they actually gave the reasons why they chose one over the other and then be able to say that. Um, but the Franciscan school is generally acknowledged hist by historians, I think, to be the largest, but it, it's for obvious reasons, because the Dominicans were always the smaller order, uh, and then therefore they possessed the less universities and faculties than the Franciscans did. And as such, Scotism was the dominant position until the French Revolution, when the French Revolution took place, and then it became contagious in the sense of secularism in the European state and uh, South American states, uh, when the government took over all these Franciscan schools of higher learning, of course, they closed them down, which meant that Scotism just died. Uh, Dominicans uh, survived that onslaught much better than the Franciscans did. Okay, that's, that's very good historical factors there. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the Jesuits? Because obviously, Suarez is a Jesuit, Bellarmine mm -hmm. is a Jesuit. Um, and you mentioned the Jesuits being the other uh, major order or sector of the church that sort of resisted the imposition of the theses. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say? Are, are Would you call them Sawarist in terms of sort of how this breaks down or Thomist or mm -hmm. how would how would the Jesuits fit in with this? Now, uh, on those three initial criteria, Suarez would consider him his own light, Thomas Aquinas. Um, he would uh, quote Thomas quite a bit. And uh, and many of his reasonings would make reference to Thomas. So to that extent, he's a Thomas. But um, as it turns out, because he was perfectly happy with adopting what was already the vogue at the time, which was mixing Scotism and Thomism, which was simply how things were done in the Middle Ages. Uh, this idea that there were these two strict schools that did not borrow, like the Franciscans were on this side of the river and the Dominicans had their fort on this side of the river and when you went to school, you had to figure out which fortress you were going to fire your volleys from. It was a mix and match game in the Middle Ages. Most of the prominent Thomas that I have run across, uh, Herveus Natalis, Armando Sabellavizu, uh, you, you name it, uh, John Capriolis, uh, this would be Dr. Matthew Minard's uh, assessment, um, and another famous one would be John of St. Thomas all incorporated to whatever degree Scotist ideas. And that may sound shocking. Well, Thomas didn't write about everything. He didn't write about, for example, certain aspects of metaphysical logic called um, beings of reason. Now, who cares about these things? Well, uh, they were important in the Middle Ages and they were important for logicians and they were revived in the 20th century and are important now for analytic sort of philosophers. But these beings of reason, these were not really discussed by Aquinas. So in the Middle Ages, it was very typical for Herveus Natalis, Armandus of Bellavizu, uh, John Capriolis to simply adopt wholesale insights of Scotus and to incorporate it into the Thomas system. Uh, Capriolis, if anybody's trying to systematize Thomas, he is. And if he didn't find Thomas answering the question, then he used the 
current Dominican culture, which was mixing and mashing. Now, at a certain point in history, because of the insults that Franciscans were lobbing against Aquinas, whether individually or even a couple times uh, Scotus himself, prior to Thomas being uh, canonized as a saint, uh, had a mean or uh, disagreeable word towards a position of Thomas, um, what this ended up doing was every Dominican had a, kind of like the moral obligation to always say, uh, Duns Scotus, you know, he had to follow that up with like spitting to the West so that, uh, you know, Satan uh, would be held back. I get that. But the interesting thing is Herbeus Natalis, who got Thomas Aquinas canonized in 1323-24, whom I've spent a lot of time on, I'll be presenting at the conference. He considers himself a Thomist, and nobody else does nowadays because he didn't hold for the um, distinction between essay and essentia as a self-described Thomist. But he incorporated the intuitive cognition of Scotus. He incorporated several ideas on logic. Um, the reality is, is that every single Dominican writer has to be taken individually to see who their influences were. Not all of them were influenced by Scotus. Maybe some of them would be influenced uh, by these eclecticists or Augustinian thought or something else. But, and it's the same for the Scotists. Uh, many of the Scotists adopted ideas from Thomas, not just from Duns Scotus. This idea that there were these two strict schools is an entirely 19th and 20th century phenomenon. And I have had papers raked over the coals before they got published because I dare use the word Thomist or Scotist because there were none in the sense that there's this list of 24 propositions and I have to compare this author from the 15th century to these 24 propositions. That did not exist. There was no Scotist school where if you didn't hold this proposition, you were kicked out. Like you, you got your card taken away. You couldn't get onto the bus. You know, you had all your privileges revoked. Uh, there may have been a line in the sand on a local convent level or even on national legislation level. How that was applied varied from region to region. So we just need to get rid of this idea that the Middle Ages reflects 19th century Europe, which is fighting against the secular onslaught and needs a united front where we all know clearly what's good and what's bad. When you're dealing with, with theology in the, the, the 13th and 14th century, which is the supreme science, all the big bucks are going there. Everyone wants to be a theologian. They're the most respected people. Uh, when they're fighting with each other, this is, uh, they're fighting with each other intellectually. Uh, and yeah, you know what? Eventually they start accusing each other of heresy because that's a really great way to win a fight, right? Burn them. So that does happen on some occasions. But, but the, the, the reality is, is that the 14th century is everybody's mixing with everybody else. And if you try to look for a purist, you're simply not going to find them. So we need to get rid of that mentality if we're actually going to talk about the historical Thomas Aquinas and the historical uh, Dominicans as they practice Dominican theology for about 200 years. Excellent. That's uh, excellent. Uh, definitely bringing us out of 19th century and 20th century prejudices. Now, what about Occam? Mm -hmm. Does Occam share the same mix, freedom of mixing, or is he persona non grata? Are there any magisterial recommendations about Occam? Um. There were attempts to put him on trial and get him condemned. I think they came to nothing if my memory... Now, I'm, I'm weak on Occam. I haven't spent a lot of time on him. I've read a few things on him. Uh, as I remember things, uh, basically, he had a similar situation where he's being defended by a secular prince 
perhaps in the Holy Roman Empire, who effectively prevented him from being condemned. Um, his propositions, you know, there was all kinds of bad words that popes did write probably somewhere about how, what a nasty, horrible person he was, but I don't think that any of that translated into officially rejecting his um, doctrine. Uh, and he's also known as a nominalist, which Scotus was not. He was a moderate realist. Uh, a nominalist doesn't believe in things, abstractions like hoarseness and humanity, that those mental abstractions uh, are, are really nothings. They're just a breath of air. Uh, they have no real meaning. So this is an entirely different world. Uh, Thomas and uh, Aquinas, uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and, and Duns Scotus are speaking the same language in moderate realism, whereas uh, uh, Occam is speaking a different one. Suarez is mixing and matching, question by question, proportionately more or less Thomism, uh, and he is also a moderate realist. So, you know, on, on the principal questions of the day philosophically, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a real question in which Thomas and Scotus can be pitted against one another uh, on classic modernist questions, on questions of Occamism, uh, on questions of modern philosophical trends. All this, all this stuff, they had so much in common because of their university training was the same university. Uh, they're reading the same sources. They're surrounded by the same uh, dictionaries or definition books and these sorts of things. So uh, there, is, there are differences, and there are fights between them, uh, but they're far less than uh, these other isms that we're dealing with in this discussion. Okay, excellent. Uh, let me ask one more question that I want to ask about the beatification of SCOTUS in the future. Um, this is coming from Michael J.C. Doe, and I think we need, I, I'd like to just ask you, um, Eterni Patris, we've mentioned it before. Um, can you... In what sense, uh, you, you you sort of admitted earlier that Thomism is sort of more prominent and more preferential by the magisterium, but to what degree is that talking about Thomism as such, as opposed to just sort of classical realism as what you're saying, as a you know, which is this 19th century revolution, you know, they're just grabbing what they can to unite the church. Uh, I guess, I mean, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this question. Uh, to what degree is the church promoting Thomism qua Thomism? Or is it just saying, well, Thomas is the best example of basic classical realism, basic philosophy 101 type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're going to use Thomism as opposed to it's because Thomas, Thomas uh, or Thomas is Thomas against Scotus or against Bonaventure. Does that make sense? Am I making yeah. sense? Uh, and, and this is uh, kind of an extrapolation from that comment that you put up as well, right? Yes. So kind of taking those two together. Well, look, it's the 19th century. You don't have a body of SCOTUS works that anybody agrees on in our SCOTUS. You have these attempts by uh, the uh, Irish SCOTUS to put out SCOTUS's works. And things are impossible to read. They're a big mess. They're a wadding edition. Uh, it's, it's the best effort you can make at the time. For Thomism, there's a body of knowledge. There's a body. There, there's an actual set of volumes which have been endorsed as uh, Thomas's works. Now, some of those we found out subsequently are not his works, but uh, by and large, it was a good selection. So we already have one advantage over most of the other schools. You have a, a body of works that have been carved out. You have a commentator tradition on these works uh, that already exists. Um, and in the 19th century, you have a grassroots movement of Thomism in Italy 
which predates Leo the Thirteenth. He's he's riding on their coattails. Nobody's riding on his coattails. Um, why would you promote Scotism? It's it's not it's not at the root of what's happening in the intellectual resurgence in Italy. Uh, you're going to have to sort through a bunch of competing works. Um, the Franciscan universities don't have the influence that they would have had in the 18th century. Uh, the schools that are reviving, they're, they're getting rid of their mixed Tomasian, as they call them, Thomas Aquinas, Descartes manuals, which are really something to behold. They're uh, manuals that mix Descartes and Thomas. Uh, I don't know what kind of chimera you get when you do that, but you can <laughs> take a look at those manuals if you like. Um, so Thomas had already had notoriety. He had been endorsed. He was a full saint of the church. Uh, Bonaventure was only lately made a saint, and the same with uh, Blessed Duns Scotus, as we talked about his canonization. Uh, that was under John Paul II. So it's it's hands down obvious why Aquinas is, is is the real choice, not because he's never changed his position on anything. Even the Dominicans didn't hold that in the 13th century. It is because he is the best chance of success, and he was faithful to the magisterium, as we now call it, uh, of the church, and uh, he had a ball. He was probably one of the most consistent theologians in the Middle Ages, which is saying something for only changing his position 80 times. Uh, that was like really good. <laughs> now, when you have 20 volumes of work, let's see, you know, uh, Tim, uh, how many you know, times you contradict yourself. Well, well, well Thomas uh, changed very little. Scotus radically changed his positions. He, in his early works on um, logic, uh, held for being being equivocal, whereas the concept of being is univocal in his later works. That's that's like opposite. Aquinas was always consistent. There's some sense of an analogous concept of being. So, you know, on fundamental doctrines, uh, uh, Scotus had radical shifts in his life. Uh, Aquinas's 80 or so shifts mostly are not are, are not radical. So if you if you want to ask why does Leo the Thirteenth endorse him? Because there's every reason to endorse him. He is the grassroots upcoming phenomenon. You've got enthusiasts and people that know him. Uh, you've got uh, a body of work that is already outlined. And Aquinas is as is, is Latin is easy to understand. Scotus is is going into a torture chamber. Uh, it's placing yourself in an iron maiden and jumping up and down. I mean, there, there's, there are so many practical things. Now, if you actually read Attorney Patris, the odd thing is, is that there's this little phrase that everyone sort of skips over. And that is that, um, one, Bonaventure is also endorsed in Attorney Patris. He only gets like the one line. Uh, but the second thing is, there's this line in there that's like, oh, well, you know, uh, yeah. And, you know, Thomas has got a bunch of stuff that needs to be updated. And so you guys uh, update whatever you need to update. Well, that's very interesting. In there, Leo XIII, for all of his enthusiasm for the burgeoning Thomistic movement, has a phrase, and if you want to pick that out, Timothy, and find it, that's fine if one of your people wants to uh, put up the famous phrase. It's something along the lines of, on questions of science or of um, questions of uh, knowledge, that there have been advances since Thomas Aquinas, and that basically Thomas's works need to be updated for that. Uh, we're still waiting for the updated version of the Summa, where we're not you know, dealing with ether, eternal ether and the planets and uh, various, they updated the Immaculate Conception. Uh, we're still dealing with uh, 13th century cosmology when we're reading Thomas Aquinas, which is rather odd considering the fact that Leo XIII wanted those questions updated. Of course, there was no force 
to really uh, bring that about. So Attorney Patras, um, as often with Roman documents, gives you a little get out of jail free card, which is, well, you said Thomas is so great on everything. What about the fact that he believes that there are this many planets, or he believes that there's abiogenesis because the sun can produce living beings by being in combination with matter, et cetera, et cetera, which of course nowadays, you know, you're considered an atheist if you believe that. So what do we do with all that? Well, Leo XIII had his get out of jail free pass. He said, well, I have it right here in this little line that says, oh, and anything that Thomas, you know, screwed up, just fix it. And nobody ever, of course, acknowledges the fact that that little line is there. Excellent. Yeah, I was trying to find that while you were talking, but I couldn't find the exact phrase. But if anyone finds it, please uh, comment and we'll put that on this video. Uh, so finally, I'd like to ask you about the beatification of or done SCOTUS by John Paul II. And this really sheds a great deal of light on the whole Vatican II controversy, which seems to be very much reacting to an excessive emphasis on Thomism, uh, on Thomas. Uh, if you re I was just reading um, Milestones by Ratzinger. He, he, constantly, he constantly is making reference to the mm -hmm. neo-scholastic and, and uh, their sort of over as their narrowness uh, and this is the type of narrowness that is actually sort of leg a legitimate problem uh, because some modernists may say, well, there's a narrowness in terms of dogma and morals and all this stuff that there, there actually should be narrowness there. Uh, but there is an actual narrowness uh, or rigidity, if you, if you might use the phrase, use the term here. Um, so what do you see as the, um, can you comment on uh, sort of the, the Vatican II effort to uh, create a bit of a more of a balance between these different schools that have, as you said, have always been there. There's always been this this good rivalry that that produces mm -hmm. good syntheses, as you said. Um, can you comment on uh, Vatican II and sort of this effort to beatify Duns Scotus and uh, create this balance with Thomism? Well, the reality is is that as Thomism survived Vatican II but took a hit. Uh, Franciscanism collapsed. So once again, the Dominicans survived where the Franciscans just, they died off. You, you have very few Scotistic or Bonaventurian theologians. There was Father Peter Damien Fellner was the last famous one of which I am aware. There, there are a lot of people that are doing philosophy out there, especially those who are uh, analytic happy. Uh, they uh, liked Unscotus because he seems to anticipate a lot of the discipline that's involved with analytic uh, philosophy. Um, but uh, really, post-Vatican II, the Franciscans uh, were decimated. Uh, and um, what you have now is you had a, I think you had a brief attempt by the Franciscans of the Immaculate to try to revive Scotism, but of course, they had their own internal problems with their order, which basically fractured it. And what they were doing to re-promote Scotism uh, effectively fell to the wayside because of more practical uh, problems, which were uh, basically internal disputes amongst what are alleged to be traditionalists versus conservatives. Um, so uh, when it comes to um, why this promotion of Duns Scotus, um, depending on whether or not you agree that John Paul II is fundamentally a Thomist, I know that there are, there's an entire dissertation that was recently written, defended by uh, a professor at um, uh, St. John Mary Vianney, who teaches there that, that, that John Paul's fundamental principles are Thomist. Uh, it, 
you may not know this, but the director of his thesis at the Angelicum was Gary Goularange. I, I should say reader. Uh, yeah. I not have been his director. Um, and uh, so he was very well informed in Thomism. Um, those who tend to think of him as a Vatican II Pope and who tend not to like Vatican II may want to reject him as in any way being Thomistic, but that's based off of the a priori that uh, he can't be Thomistic because he's just a bad guy. And only good guys are Thomist, even though you know some of those Thomists got burned at the stake, just like some of the Scotists got burned at the stake in their own days. So uh, you can be a Thomist. Uh, and in fact, there's an entire group of Thomists out there in Europe who are atheists. They just really like Thomas Aquinas. So uh, I don't think that there's any weird mixer matches. The internet has shown us uh, if you have a propensity towards anything, there's a special group. <laughs> you can meet hundreds, if not thousands of them who like to uh, disembowel animals and hang them in the exact same arrangement as you do. So, uh, you know, this idea that, um, you know, that there are these, these, these cardboard cookie cutouts uh, simply don't re reflect human reality. So the beatification, I think, ha has more to do with John Paul II um, and his, his way of trying to promote devotion to saints by beatifying them for the sake of those uh, for whom they're patrons. So my guess would be is that um, being the Marian doctor, he, uh, John Paul II probably uh, felt um, a real impetus to get that cause moving along. Uh, and because the Franciscans needed uh, to have their doctor, uh, along with Bonaventure, uh, get uh, the recognition as he has officially been their doctor for centuries, and yet he's, he's, he's not beatified, so to make sure that that process went along. Um, there's other people that know the process very, very well. I've only read a little bit on it. Um, but I, I would say this. It, it hasn't led to a revival of Scotism as of yet, uh, his beatification. Uh, and if there is a Scotist theology, it will always be a loose theology. It's more about principles and less about theses. There's not going to be 24 Franciscan theses to oppose the 24 Thomistic theses. It's more going to be taking certain ideas that are central to Scotism, for example, to, to a great degree, the, the, the university of the concept of being, uh, the transcendent, uh, transcendental disjuncts, these sorts of things, and to use those as starting points for thinking critically. That's really, in my mind, what Scotism is about. Now, some will say, well, if you're into theology, you know, there, there is a Scotistic and Bonaventurian approach to sacramental theology and moral theology. That's true. I think that you get into more particulars there. When it comes to metaphysics and physics, uh, you're, you're, you're dealing more with general principles. And there was a lot of mixing and matching of groups for the, the, May the Mayronists and various other groups within Franciscanism, which had a wide berth and toleration for disagreeing with Duns or perfecting Duns or making distinctions that Duns himself would have never made. Excellent. Thank you very much, Father Cavus. It's been a pleasure to speak with you about. It. I hope it's been helpful to, to listeners. Anything else you'd like to promote in terms of things going on at the seminary or any uh, coming papers? I have the link once again to the conference coming. It's in the show notes below. No, I would just in, invite any, anyone who would like to know more about uh, the mixing and matching of scholasticism and even how that was received into the Greek-speaking churches, the Orthodox churches. Our conference will be very much on the topics. There will also be some Thomas-centric 
uh, topics. For example, we have uh, one of my students who'll be presenting on um, the concept of relations in the Trinity as subsistent persons, how uh, Thomas's uh, sources uh, are uh, in the patristic Greek and uh, Latin uh, tradition, these sorts of things. So uh, I think that the, the conference will be a nice um, display of how much variety and mixing and matching of both Greek and Latin sources and Thomas Scotist and Bonaventurian sources that were in the Middle Ages, and how it's really only a modern uh, conception, meaning from the 19th century on, late 19th century, early 20th century on, that we have to uh, somehow exclude all other schools of thought. Of course, John Paul II, in so many words, uh, cured us of this, I'll leave off here, uh, with Fides et Ratio, which was a rather controversial document when it came out. Because the uh, Dominicans, who have been super faithful to the magisterium and, and super friendly uh, to the uh, to the popes in Vatican II, and very supportive, and, and, and sort of crown jewels in, in many ways of uh, doing moral theology uh, on so many medical ethical questions, I think there was a certain feel of uh, having the rug pulled out under them because Thomism was officially declared not uh, the official. Uh, philosophy or theology of the church, and that the church doesn't have an official theology or philosophy. And that was felt to be against the spirit, not the letter, but the spirit of uh, Pope Pius XI, uh, even if Pius XI hedged his bets when he, he, he used his own language. Excellent. Thank you very much, Father Cabas. So once again, the link is below. And Father Cabas, can you give us a blessing or a prayer to close us out? Sure. May the blessing of Almighty God be with us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.